I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Professor Andrea Freeman. Andrea Freeman is a professor of law at the University of Hawaii, and she joins me to discuss the global food security crisis, which has been exacerbated by the pandemic. We talk about why fresh produce is rotting in farm fields, while food banks across the country have shortages and long lines that stretch for blocks of people just waiting to receive food. We also talk about the long-standing flaws within the country's food policies, which have been instrumental in worsening our food security issues, problems that the country has grappled with even before the coronavirus outbreak. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Professor Andrea Freeman. Andrea Freeman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. So one of the things that's been consistent about the coronavirus outbreak is that these existing vulnerabilities and, you know, shortcomings in our systems, you know, they're being revealed and kind of amplified. And one of those things, of course, is our food insecurity problem. And and I think one of the things that stood out to me when this whole thing began was how quickly it became obvious and how quickly food banks became overwhelmed. You know, we saw these lines for food banks around the corner. Do we have a way of quantifying? Because I think people are under the assumption that, you know, most Americans had food security before the pandemic. And now, you know, things have just kind of tipped over, but that's not true. So do we have a way of quantifying what our food insecurity levels were before the pandemic and what they are now? Right. So you've really just hit the nail on the head as far as this problem that's already been here for a long time is now being highlighted. And it's surprising just that people are surprised because before the pandemic, there were 38 million people who were receiving food stamps. And well, they're not literal stamps anymore, but we're <laughs> receiving SNAP. Even that wasn't enough. So there was over 38 million people who were receiving assistance that was not enough. And most of them ran out of the amount that they got two weeks into a month. And so now we have millions more people who have suddenly lost their jobs, who are not able to access unemployment right away, whose checks cannot this, you know, one-time stimulus checks are not stretching to buy enough food for their families. So the problem was always there. And now it's being multiplied exponentially. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned SNAP because that's a really important part of this picture because another assumption that I think people make is that, oh, you know, you know, people who have, you know, food insecurity, well, we've got food stamps. We don't call them food stamps anymore. We call them SNAP and they use, I think, EBT cards, I think they're called. I think the assumption was that if you had that, (laughs) you no longer had an issue with access to food or being able to buy food, but it's really measly, right? I think on average, it was something like $127 a month. Yeah. I mean, the amount that is allotted to families is so small. There's a chart for SNAP and they use the very lowest amounts. So for adult males, it's something like $44 a week. So we have this kind of subsistence survival level and That leads to a lot of problems, which are not just hunger, but also bad nutrition, right? So poor nutrition, even before this, was the greatest cause of preventable deaths in the United States. And a lot of that comes from people having to stretch dollars to food that is filling, but not nutritious. Right, right. And I want to talk about that, too, because that's really significant with the the particular problem we're having right now, which is the pandemic. Right. But I want to talk about SNAP again, because I know that there was a Families First Coronavirus Response Act, which passed. Right. What was the increase to SNAP? I think it was eight percent or 15 percent. 
But the problem is it did not stretch to every family and it actually left out 40% of the households who received SNAP. So it was something, but it wasn't enough. How did it leave out 40%? I don't understand. Yeah, because what it does is it leaves it up to each state to apply for the additional money and to jump through the hoops to get it. And so the process is complicated. Not every state is doing it for every household. Yeah, you know, but it probably is related to the fact that we do not have a coordinated national response, (laughs) which would help, right? If you're leaving it up to the states, you know, things like this are not applied evenly. Yeah, and this was Um, a problem. This is another thing that was a problem before. Because we have things like work requirements and SNAP that make it really difficult for people to get their assistance, even when they're eligible. And states could apply for waivers when they have really high unemployment. But not every state would do that because of a political philosophy, a way of looking at food stamps. And so the people who just happen to live in those states wouldn't be able to get their food assistance when needed, when other states, they would have access to it. Right, right. I mean, we could go down that that rabbit hole and talk about the shaming of poor people here in the country, which is why, you know, some states, depending on their political leanings, would not be in favor of being more generous with benefits like this or applying them in a way that would actually help people uh, as much as they could. Yeah. But anyway, so even if you look at the pre-pandemic allowance for SNAP, and you said something like $44 for an adult male, which is you know, I mean, come on, you know, $44, the quality of food that you can purchase to make that stretch into the next week, right, right. Um, can't be great. And the whole thing is that the pandemic is in part a health issue, right? Exactly. So the fact that we have given people an amount of money to secure food that doesn't give them optimal health makes this even worse. Yeah. And it really underscores the racial disparities in both health and nutrition and in COVID-19 deaths and extreme cases because those are related. And so part, you know, there are many explanations for the racially disproportionate impact of the coronavirus. But one of them is these underlying risk factors, which are the result of years of unequal food policy and health and nutrition. Yeah. And, you know, that's a really sticky one because I want to be careful going down that that road because, you know, a lot of people and I mean, I know there's a historical precedence for this, but a lot of people eat the way they do for cultural reasons. Right. But just generally, America doesn't have equally access to healthy food. Right. So just as a population, we're probably less healthy than we could be. You know, that's that's one thing. But there is also there are structural factors that I think are sometimes covered over by ideas of these are just personal choice. These are just what people like to eat. They're just unhealthy people who, you know, like it turns into sometimes a, a blaming type of game where the idea is, oh, well, even if we gave them better food, they wouldn't eat it because they just don't like it. Right. And so I think there are assumptions there that aren't always correct. And just because you like a certain type of food doesn't mean that food has to be the unhealthy version of the food, too. Right. Right. No, you're absolutely right. You are absolutely right. And it's really complicated and it's really convoluted because I don't want to be judgmental or chiding about people who this is just culturally the way that they eat and it may be unhealthy and there are healthier ways. Um, I mean, because part of it is is really environmental, right? Because, I mean, you wouldn't say some people just love to eat McDonald's every day, right? But, yeah. I mean, they do, but you would say <laughs> that's all they have. 
right? They live in a food swamp. If you want something that is fresh, you have to go to the corner store or the liquor store and the selection is terrible and expensive and you're going to be more full and satisfied if you eat three Whoppers. Yeah. So there's a lot of dynamics that have to do with residential segregation and zoning and all kinds of things that have absolutely nothing to do with cultural preferences or what people want to eat. A lot of the choices we make are about what is accessible, what is affordable. Yeah. I grew up in Memphis. Yeah. And, you know, they, we ate a lot of catfish, a lot of fried cat. I don't eat anymore. I never liked catfish. But <laughs> <laughs> I just, I still don't, I just don't like it. But that was the cheapest seafood yeah. available, yeah. right? And so we weren't necessarily eating McDonald's, but, you know, we actually didn't have the money to buy, you know, a salmon filet. Yeah, so. but I still think that that is probably better than a Big Bag. <laughs> Right. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Right. But, you know, if you give me a choice as a kid, I would have chosen the Big Mac over the catfish. Uh, trust me. Every kid would. <laughs> you're not alone there yeah so but I do want to talk about like because you did a report for Justice Collaborative I think one of the things that you talk about are the food banks right and I know that a lot of them after the pandemic were forced to close because you know honestly they have some of the same health concerns and same issues safety issues that, that restaurants have so they're forced to close so when that happened what happened to all of that food well they were already running low on food Right. So the, the food supply issues that are affecting everybody and making it more difficult for people, for example, to get meat or flour or tofu, whatever it is you want to eat. Right. Uh, they affected food banks, too. So some people have been trying to put together programs where the food waste that's happening because of the supply chain problems could be delivered to food banks. There's a lot of problems with distribution because, you know, there are vegetables rotting in the field, but the places that transport normally those vegetables, they just don't have the packaging to make it small, right? Same with the milk that's going down the drain and other food waste that we're seeing. So we have a mismatch here of hungry people and empty food banks. And on the other hand, incredible food waste that is literally just being thrown out. So you're saying the reason is because they're used to distributing them in larger quantities to restaurants and to, you know, I guess, grocery stores and to schools, for instance. Right. And they, di they didn't have the packaging capacity to put them in smaller packages for individuals. And, and so they just go to waste. Is that what the problem is? That's right. So the majority of food production is for institutions and restaurants. And so with school closures, as well as other sort of large institutions that house a lot of people, then there's no market and they just don't have the literal packaging or the system to take those potatoes or that milk and make it possible for it to be given to individuals or families, right? There's no storage capacity. There's no, there's all kinds of problems. Everything that's involved in food distribution, getting it from one place to the next does not work once those places close down. Wow. Has there been a solution to that or the, or is this food still rotting? It's still rotting. We don't have a solution. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, there's some local solutions, right? And one of the main issues that has come to light is the intense concentration of food distribution and food production in this country that has been harmful to smaller farmers this entire time. But now we're seeing the real problem is that if we had allowed 
the smaller farmers to keep operating through some support and not allowing this massive concentration of farming, then people would be able to access the food directly from the farms because that's possible. So people there who live close enough to drive up and take the potatoes, they could get it. Right. Because these places are far, far out. They, you know, they're not near the Bronx or Harlem or Seattle or anything like no. that. They're, they're really far away. And like, for instance, like Seattle, we have a farmer's market. We have lots of farmer's markets. Those are probably local farms that are, you know, you can get there in a bus ride or a drive and you can probably get to those farms and get that food. Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yes, that would be fine. But the most of the food production is not done by them. That is a minuscule yeah. amount of food production. And I would imagine that they are going to run through their produce pretty quickly or whatever they're selling, right? But the concentration of food production is in maybe five or six major farms that are more in the middle of nowhere, not near urban centers, right? And as you're saying, not accessible for people to just drive up and take what they need. So hence the waste. So I'm just curious. So one of the things that happened was Trump ordered that meat processing plants stay open, right? And people were critical of that because of, I guess, one angle that I saw was because of the cases of COVID-19. People were testing positive in these processing plants. Do we know how many cases there are at this point? Yeah, though that counting is really difficult. And I've seen a lot of reports of people working in these plants saying that they're not revealing cases, even to the workers, so they can't protect themselves. So I don't think we really know what's going on. But we do know that several of the meatpacking plants are responsible for major outbreaks and very high amounts of cases in small areas that affect not just the workers, but also the surrounding communities. So, but back to the meat processing plants, Trump, you know, he ordered that they stay open and don't get putting people in danger. But we also have this shortage of food that we need to get the food banks. You know, how, how do we reconcile the two? Right. I mean, what's happening is Trump is manufacturing a shortage where there isn't one because he is equating a meat shortage with a food shortage. Okay. So just because you can't eat meat doesn't mean you're going to starve. That is true. That's true. I do know that. But then, okay, again, I have to play devil's advocate because you've got somebody on the front lines, mother or single mother or dad, or they're working for FedEx or UPS and they're delivering and they have to, you know, get home and like feed their family really quickly. And they just want to give their kids hot dogs. You know, maybe they, you know, they have a little bit of money in their account and they can't go out and, you know, buy, you know, again, using the salmon. (laughs) Okay. Salmon fillets, as an example, kids, they want to give them something that will fill them up, that will help them sleep, something that they're, that's familiar. They can't switch to, you know, a plant-based diet overnight. Okay. Or, well, maybe they don't want to. All right. Well, let, let's give two. <laughs> let me respond in two ways. Okay. okay. The first is, let's say that that family that you're describing, their job is not UPS or FedEx. It's the meat plant. Okay. So do those kids deserve to have their parents die? <laughs> Right. Because another family doesn't prefer to eat a veggie dog over a meat. Right? I mean, like it actually does come down to that. 
Yeah. I think that the problem is the culture here is so focused on personal choice. And this is a problem that I've seen in food policy. This is actually what inspired me to get into food work way back in the law student days, because it's an area where people refuse to give up choice to an extreme degree, right? We know we're fine with seatbelts and we're fine with fire drills and other things that would save our lives. But we absolutely will not allow the government to say, you cannot eat this thing, even if it's going to kill you. Okay. So I don't know why we're so attached to that. But I think in this era where a lot of people are making sacrifices, the sacrifice of choosing something you might not prefer, like a veggie dog over a turkey dog or whatever people eat, is not too great a thing to ask to save people's lives. I don't know if it's that simple, really, right? I mean, it's just... Often those things are much, much more expensive than just, you know, buying a package of hot dogs. And then that goes back to the original thing that we talked about, about SNAP benefits and about people being, you know, kind of underpaid. Um, Yes, I agree. That that was a simplistic scenario that I was laying out just to provide a contrast between, you you had said people may not choose to eat that. So that addresses that part of it. Like maybe they don't like it. Yeah, maybe they don't like it, but maybe they could like it just for a short period to save some other family's lives. Right. Yeah. But, you know, everybody who is on the front lines, I mean, that's a whole other conversation. But everyone who is probably at or below the poverty line who's dealing with food insecurity right now are probably are probably working in some position that's considered essential. You know, if they're not a doctor or nurse, you know, if there's something and, you know, they're working. So they're all putting their lives on the line. All of them. The the UPS driver, the example we used, and the person who's working in the meatpacking plant, they're kind of all in the same position. That's true. That's true. Sorry, I've never cursed on this podcast, but it's- No, you're absolutely right. But then this is, I mean, I have my own perspective, but my perspective is that whereas we may not be able to sacrifice shopping, like we have to be able to get food, okay? But the content of the food, I think, is an area where maybe we could sacrifice. And then the other problem that you've identified, which is a very real one, is another one that is the result of long-term food policy. And that is that it is seen to be more expensive to eat a healthy vegetarian diet than one that's dominated by meat, right? But the only reason that it's more expensive is because of the heavy subsidies of the meat industry. So if that money went into lentils or beans or other things that are uh, healthy, healthier substitute for meat that people could be eating now, that would be affordable. You know, they could be more affordable if the government did not just kowtow to the meat industry and the dairy industry and these other unhealthy but dominant food industries, instead of trying to promote foods that actually make people healthy, and then they would be more common, and then people would know how to cook beans or how to cook lentils or whatever, and they would probably like them more because they were cheaper and they were accessible. Yeah, that's a whole other, that's that's a completely different conversation. I know, <laughs> I, I know, tell you that. I know. Yeah, I mean, I don't even eat meat that often, but I can tell you something, and you're right now, don't take away my butter. <laughs> I won't take it away. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. <laughs> you, you want to see some, like, I don't know, violence, take away my butter and my cheese. Anyway, I'm just joking. No, I totally feel but, you. But I mean, if you didn't have it, you'd still live, right? I mean, it's just like, maybe there's a maybe. lot of things we want right now that we can't have. <laughs> 
Uh, anyway, so that that went off the rails, yes. but but so so back to the meat processing plant. So one of the the things I wanted to ask you about, just to close off that piece of the conversation, yeah. is that I, you know he ordered they, they either reopen the ones that had closed or you know stay open, but I don't think that there was any plan for them to operate safely. Well, they are putting in theoretically more precautions and more safety measures. But the problem is that the very design and nature of these plants makes it almost impossible for those to be effective because it has to do with the work that's being done and the fact that people need to be close to each other to, for example, go to pig. Okay. <laughs> so I, yeah. I don't want to get too gory, right? But what's happening in the slaughterhouses is work that can only be done in specific ways. And it is almost impossible to make that work safe. And also, if they did, if they did to the extent that they could and put in all these measures, it would slow down the process to such an extent that you would still be seeing supply problems. Because so I don't have the statistics, but I have read them there. You could find them. It's something like we process 3000 hogs an hour. Okay. But if we put in the safety measures required to stop the spread of the coronavirus in the plant, we would only produce 45. So there's some kind of extreme difference there. And those are not the right numbers. But it's something equivalent that makes it almost impossible. And it wouldn't even accomplish the goal that Trump has of keeping the meat production similar to what it was. Right. This is just, you know, the more I think about it, this is just untenable, right? That's just because, I mean, the thing that you just described is happening in almost every single industry. You know, like some colleges think that they're going to open this fall, that they probably won't be able to, but they think that they're going to open this fall. And, you know, the plan is to have students sit six seats apart or something like that. And the same thing for movie theaters and other places, you know, like you go to a basketball game and that that means fewer ticket sales for everything. Right. And they're just saying it to make money, too, particularly with colleges. And because I'm in that system, that's something I'm paying a lot of attention to as well. And it's just, it's not realistic. It's not even possible. But if they say now that they're not going to do it, they're going to lose so much revenue that they just don't want to say it. Right, exactly. Like I said, it's just untenable. I mean, the only solution is to not be in a pandemic, right? Like to, you know, to have a vaccine, but that's a whole other conversation, a whole other set of experts about, you know, whether a vaccine is forthcoming or not. But in relation to food, this one is a little bit different because everyone that I talk to about these different areas of the way that this is affecting the country or the world say, you know, this is a watershed moment. This is a chance for us to redo X, right? Like, for instance, I was talking to a few people about voting rights, right, and how we're going to vote in the future. And that one, in you know, in comparison to food insecurity is a lot simpler to solve. You know, people just vote, vote from home. They vote yeah. by mail. Yeah. Easy, right? It's it's more, it's actually more democratic. That's, that's a great example of a watershed moment where we can make things better. Prisons, which is a tougher example. You know, we have a lot of people who are in jail because they can't pay their bail. Yeah. This is, this is you know, which is silly. You know, this is well, another it's opportunity. Prison. It's not even silly. It's actually should be illegal, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, you're right. It should be yeah. illegal, right? Uh, I mean, it's just silly in that there there is no logical reason to hold people. You know, it's just our culture of over-incarceration. But, you know, that, you know, again, that could be an example uh, or a way, a watershed moment to change that system, right? Absolutely. With food, you're the expert, I just feel like because of the examples I gave you and I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about my mom, you know, coming home. She just wants to make me a sloppy joe. You know, Um, I I just don't 
I don't know if this is the right time for this to be a watershed moment to overhaul things when families are under so much stress. They just need money. They just need a greater snap increase than 15%. They need, you know, more access to food and, you know, they can become vegetarians later. <laughs> oh, I mean, that's only one aspect of it. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just making my, okay. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. serious question is, is this a good example for a watershed moment? I mean, okay. So to go on that vegetarian tack just for a minute, <laughs> right? It, it really is a key moment for not people just to go vegetarian, but to even introduce into their diets some vegetarian meals. This is an important moment for that because of climate change. So if you're going to be doing any work on that, then you can really connect it there because it is clear that we can improve some of the damage of climate change by reducing meat intake. And this is the right time to do it. And also that it doesn't have to be a cold turkey. I'm never eating meat again. If you ate meat one less day a week, then we might see better outcomes in the future. And that might not be something intentional. That might just be we're in a meat shortage, right? And it happens and people get used to it. Maybe they feel the better effects on their body and they like it. And maybe they don't. Some go back and some don't. But as far as things like SNAP go, I think what we really want to see is that the changes that have to be made now continue into the future. That's what's essential. So we need to see an increase in the amounts and they should never go down again. We're seeing a waiver of work requirements because of the extreme unemployment, and they should either not be reintroduced or they should be reintroduced in a much less harsh way that takes into account the realistic circumstances of low-paid work. Okay, We are seeing things like now, for the first time, you could use SNAP for online delivery. And that is so important because of the fact that so many SNAP users do live in food deserts and food swamps where they're not able to access healthy food or culturally the food that they want. And by expanding the ability to get food from different sources, right, and and this time it's because of the safety of not being able to go around and shop a lot, but that is something that could make a really big difference going into the future if we keep it. Another change that's happening is the possibility of using SNAP in restaurants. And that's being done now to support the restaurant industry. But I think it also would be helpful to allow people in the future to get hot, nutritious meals when they are not able to spend time cooking or doing things because they're working three jobs and there's this many people in the household or, you know, any other issues that a lot of people are dealing with. So there are so many changes that were always necessary are being put into place in an emergency mode that I hope we see extend in the future. Yeah, well, well, Andrea Freeman, you've given me a lot of food for thought. I'm sorry. <laughs> you had to go there. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this work. It's really, really important. I could talk to you all day about this, about food anytime, but yeah, this specifically. So thank you so much. Okay. Well, thank you for reaching out. 